is Tech Refactored, a podcast in which we explore the ever-changing relationship between technology, society, and the law. I'm your host, Gus Hurwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. Today, we're kicking off Season 3 of Tech Refactored by talking to Kyle Langbart. I'm a professor here at the Law College. I'm a faculty fellow in the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. Kyle is a constitutional law scholar whose work focuses on the First Amendment and online speech and how we regulate online platforms. Everything from Facebook and TikTok to ride-sharing apps and blockchain and really the nature of democracy. Easy stuff. We start our conversation with some background, talking about what online platforms are and why we might think that something like a ride-sharing app is similar to a local newspaper and some of the puzzles that this can create from the First Amendment perspective. Later in our conversation, we turn to some of Kyle's current work, including some ideas about how the government can support local media like newspapers in a way that doesn't violate the First Amendment, and also some of the problems with these ideas. And then we have some discussion about whether the blockchain and cryptocurrency might be protected by the First Amendment. Narrator says they aren't. You work on platforms mm-hmm. and you do a lot of free speech, First Amendment stuff. So let, let's just start. Um, what What is a platform? Well, you know, it's kind of a broad concept, but I guess I, I would say that a platform is kind of like the organizational structure behind what's sometimes called Web 2.0. So on Web 2.0, you don't have to go and build your own website to go and communicate with others. Instead, you can sign up, establish some kind of account with a big website that will allow you to set up a profile that's kind of standardized and and that allows you to uh, exchange information with with others in structured ways. You could maybe think of a platform as something that makes sure that everybody is communicating in the same format with everybody else. And that does all of the early technical work of just getting on the internet and setting up some kind of presence in the first place. Social platforms, I guess, are the the first thing that I think of. But you could also think of uh, something like like Uber as a as a platform. You know, Uber sets up a way for cab drivers or or, or car owners to transact with potential passengers and to give a share of cab fares to, to the company. What, what the platform does is it standardizes this entire operation so that the cabbies don't have to go and do that up front. Really interesting that you start with uh, Web 2.0 for thinking about platforms, in, in part because uh, later on we'll talk a bit about cryptocurrency regulation and mm-hmm. uh, uh, the blockchain concepts. And uh, there's this new thing that some folks are pushing, Web 3.0. But the more useful thing is to juxtapose this back to Web 1.0. And of course, with mm-hmm. 1.0, you just called it the web um, or the, the internet. Yeah. Um, and and yeah. back in the 90s uh, <laughs> or even before um, when when some of us, were getting online, you would set up your own web server, you'd set up your own website, and you would have to provide all the infrastructure and then go out and do marketing or word of mouth or get people to come to your site. But that relationship has been reversed in the uh, Web 2.0 era. Um, Now you don't start your website, you as you say, you go to Twitter and create your account or your profile and all that standardization is done. And it's not just users, you can think uh, Amazon and Amazon sellers. Mm -hmm. Amazon is a platform for 
uh, storefronts to come and start selling. Um, and I, I really like that you use the, the Uber example as well, because uh, you, you don't even need to be a, a cab driver. You, you could go back mm-hmm. to the car 1.0 version of taxis. And uh, <laughs> that, that was the era of, of hitchhiking um, and uh, uh, individual <laughs> riders negotiating with individual drivers. And Uber is a, a platform. They provide a lot of the, the tools and mechanisms to match drivers with users and a lot of the infrastructure, the, the billing, a lot of the safety infrastructure um, and stuff like that. So I guess a uh, follow-up question to what is a platform, uh, I had expected that you would not go straight to Web 2.0, and I'm going to ask my follow-up question anyhow. Um, is a newspaper a platform, like a 1950s, 1970s era newspaper? Is that a platform? Well, you could, I mean, you could say so in a really broad sense. And I mean, people use the word platform sometimes that that way. You know, they'll, they'll say that a newspaper or even something like a speaking series or a, or a TV show uh, gives a platform to certain types of speakers. And I think what, what they mean by that is that if I get an op-ed published in the Lincoln Journal Star, that takes a lot less work than me setting up my own like uh, leafleting operation that'll reach everybody in town that same way. The Lincoln Journal Star has already bought the the presses that they need. They've set up the distribution networks that they need to communicate speech to lots of people in a print form. And if I want to run my op-ed there and they pick up the op-ed, then I get to kind of ride on the back of all that work that they've already done in the front end. And so in, in that sense, a 20th century newspaper was somewhat similar to the types of platforms that we have today. I think the the big difference is that today's platforms, because they're on the internet, where the cost of everything is just much, much lower, today's platforms don't have the same kind of limits in terms of how many people they're going to admit. So an old newspaper can only print so many op-eds in any given day. TikTok, it's it's basically unlimited how many videos they're going to run. So I guess we could say there was newspaper 1.0 as well. Uh, the the mm-hmm. back in the day of uh, Thomas Paine and I guess Martin Luther pamphleteers uh, going around printing uh, your version of op eds as uh, flyers mm-hmm. or uh, short books or nailing up them up onto uh, the the local front door of the church. Um, that that mm-hmm. was kind of the pre newspaper uh, version of getting ideas out. And then you have newspapers, and they're a uh, they provide the infrastructure. They connect uh, readers uh, with writers, um, and they provide a range of functions, including some filtering and editorial selection and discretion and stuff like that. And the reason that I wanted to jump from platforms in the technical modern sense to the traditional newspaper sense, of course, is when we think about the First Amendment, newspapers, at least for some of us, come to mind. And uh, Mm -hmm. you are, uh, first and foremost, a First Amendment scholar. So, Kyle, can you in 30 seconds, just tell us what the First <laughs> Amendment is, and then we'll, we'll talk about some of the, the reasons it's so challenging and interesting a, a field uh, nowadays. Yeah, well, the, the First Amendment provides protections for the free exercise of, of religion. It blocks the, the government from establishing a religion, what, whatever that means. Provides protections for speech, press, right to petition the government for a redress of grievances. 
And these last three, the, the, the petition right and the speech right and the press right, they all just get kind of rolled up into what we call the freedom of speech. At least that's, that's the way the First Amendment's read today. Now, <laughs> the, first, the First Amendment's always been interesting, but it, at least as far as the platform discussion goes, the First Amendment is interesting here because it's not yet clear how we should be thinking of these platforms in First Amendment terms. So the platforms, and I think I've already gone beyond the 30 seconds. Yeah, here, you're, you're doing well. <laughs> the platforms take the position that they're basically like newspapers for a lot of the reasons that we were describing earlier. It's not, it's not very hard to draw an analogy there. And on top of that, newspapers and platforms both play roles in deciding what kind of, like you could call it third-party content they're going to carry. So it's tough to get an op-ed into the New York Times. They have all kinds of standards that they'll apply. You can't use a lot of like profanity in your op-ed. The, the New York Times will cut that. They'll, they'll censor it. And similarly on a big modern platform, you know, you know a, a Facebook, there's stuff that you're not allowed to say on, on Facebook. And some of that stuff, let's say we're talking about I don't know, child sexual abuse material or something like that. Odds are it's not even going to post in the first place because uh, algorithms will I identify it and, and cut it off at the source. Well, so a lot of the controversy around platforms these days has to do with this role that they play in, uh, I think we could say, censoring speech, though there's a lot of kind of emotional freight around that language, maybe re regulating speech. They would say editing speech. Now, some people, and I would include myself in this group, view what the platforms are doing as basically a form of regulation. I mean, I think that's the, that's the upshot. A lot of this regulation is important, but I think it basically amounts to regulation. And once you look at a platform like Facebook as a kind of, of regulator, like a really important regulator that's big enough that it can do things like you know block a former president of the United States, well, naturally, people are going to come in and say, well, I thought, I thought we had these free speech rights. And, and it seems like the, the free speech rights don't work the same way on Facebook as they do in the First Amendment tradition. Facebook's answer to that is to say, okay, first of all, we're not the government, so the First Amendment doesn't apply to us. And in fact, the, the First Amendment protects our right to choose what speech we're going to allow on our platform because we also are protected by the First Amendment. Well, and that's and that's the second stage of this. So, you know, if the First Amendment doesn't prohibit Facebook to block some speaker, then somebody might come in. I mean, we're seeing this right now in like Florida with Ron DeSantis, and they might write a bill. They'll say, okay, you don't have protection under the Constitution. Well, we'll give, we'll give social media users protections under a statute. Well, this is the step when, you know, as you're saying there, Gus, the platform is going to say, hey, the statute's bad too, because in fact, we're editors. We're, we're like the New York Times. And if you tell us we can't block the president, well, you might as well be telling the New York Times that they can't block the president. And, and that's an infringement on our editorial rights. Now, it's a clean argument. My sense is it, it's probably a little, a little too clean. I think there are all kinds of reasons why we should be wary about having the government set rules for what Facebook will allow and, and what Facebook can block. But I think it probably goes a little too far to say the government can't have any role at all 
in regulating that. And, and I think there are a couple of a couple of reasons for that. You actually are working on editing right now a book that explores several mm-hmm. of these topics because you and many others, myself included, are, are working on these issues and exploring some of these. Um, but for listeners, if you could just briefly summarize what some of these reasons are, um, that, that would be wonderful. Uh, you know, I think one reason to treat it differently is that if you read the New York Times or if you watch Fox News. There's an editorial tone. There's a there's a clear voice there. And even if the newspaper is running op-eds that supposedly don't speak for the newspaper, there's an understanding. I think most people would recognize that the newspaper isn't just accepting all all comers. Certain voices are going to get run at the New York Times and certain voices are not going to be run and that that's a, a basically editorial choice. Now, I think if we're talking about, let's say, Facebook, and it's setting rules regarding hate speech, regarding, I don't know, sexual harassment, whatever it is, I am not necessarily going to view those rules as an expression of editorial tone. Instead, they seem more to me like what Facebook calls them, which is community, you know, the community standards. They look more like laws. And the question is just how much credence we're going to give to the argument that these kinds of rules, which Facebook itself, you know, frames as rules, how much credence we're going to give to the fact that Facebook is a private rather than a public institution. Yeah, so th- this is just a conceptually subtle and fascinating point. Um, ba- basically, what you're saying is the New York Times is biased. They have an editorial perspective, and anyone who reads it or any other newspaper knows this newspaper has a point of view, and mm-hmm. that makes it both politically valuable, so meriting some amount of First Amendment protection from a, a Madisonian perspective, and that that's a gloss for uh, listeners. Um, th- there are longstanding debates about what the purpose of the First Amendment is, and Madison argued that the purpose of the First Amendment is to promote uh, political discourse and debate and a healthy democracy. Um, So Mm -hmm. political speech, like a newspaper with a point of view, is particularly valuable from that perspective. But if the platforms are not saying we have a perspective, or even if they do have a perspective, but most users don't realize it, it's kind of hidden Mm -hmm. and only comes out at the 64,000 foot view. Well, maybe we need to be thinking about this from a a different perspective uh, on First Mm -hmm. Amendment grounds. The thing that the platform is doing is different. And because it's not overtly engaging with a point of view, um, maybe we need to protect it less or differently, but we definitely need to think about it differently. That That's a, a really powerful and uh, subtle sort of argument there. Yeah. And I mean, here's one kind of thought experiment to do. Let's say the government bought Facebook. I think that if the government bought Facebook, it would be pretty clear that the rules on Facebook, even if they didn't change, would be subject to First Amendment review. You know, th- these would be governmental regulations of speech. Now, the government might try to make this argument that, hey, we're just speaking. All we're doing is just sending a message to the public. This is called the government speech doctrine. Under this government speech doctrine, the government is entitled to, say, for example, wear a mask 
They don't have to present the argument for not wearing a mask. They can decide what their message is going to be. If the government puts on a panel of experts, they don't have to include cranks. That's not a First Amendment decision. But now say that the government bought Facebook and said, well, all of our rules for Facebook usage are actually just governmental messaging. And so the First Amendment doesn't apply to them at all. My sense, and, and I admit that a lot of this is almost just kind of a gut thing, but my sense is that that argument would be just obviously wrong. You know, the government would obviously be involved in regulation rather than just pure speech. And so if that's the case, then this all really comes down to just how much do we want to make of the fact that one entity is public and one entity is private? I mean, here's the precursor that I would point to. You know, today, I think most people who have some level of acquaintance with the law will accept it as common sense that, yeah, of course you don't apply the same kinds of rules about speech to a private institution as a public institution. First Amendment's about regulating the government. But now think about civil rights. There was a time in the 1950s when, you know, voices that were regarded as at least within the realm of respectable discourse at, at the time. Today, they, they wouldn't be. But they argued that um, if a shop owner wants to discriminate on the basis of race, if an employer wants to discriminate on the basis of race, well, that's a, that's a private decision. And so the constitutional rules against discrimination on the basis of race, therefore, don't apply to that private employer, that private shop owner. And in fact, some of these thinkers would even go one step further and say, there's a, a, like an associational freedom dimension of here. This is, a, this is basically a liberty question. If we're on the private side of this public-private line, then these private actors should be able to associate with whomever they, they please. And the people they exclude, perhaps even on the basis of race, well, they're also free to associate with whomever they, they please. Now, today, you know, we look at that line of thinking as, as obviously wrong. Like it, I think most people would say it, it's perfectly appropriate for the government to step in and set up human rights rules that prohibit private actors from discriminating on the basis of race. But I think that's not, at least not yet, the way that we think about speech. The way that we think about speech today still looks, I think, quite a bit like the way that we thought about race or that many thought about race in the early 20th century, which was a way of thinking that said, everything comes down to this line between public and private. I expect that that's going to change over time. And the reason for that is just that these private institutions have a kind of power to restrict speech that they just didn't really have uh, before the internet. So the, uh, a whole lot that we could uh, jump into there. I guess I'm only going to let myself ask one question, though. The gatekeeper on these mm -hmm. issues ultimately is the Supreme Court, or I guess you could say mm -hmm. ultimately it's the uh, the citizens and the population through the amendment process. But that is so difficult with our Constitution that mm -hmm. really the, the gatekeeper is the Supreme Court. And our current Supreme Court has very 
complex and mixed views, I think, on speech issues. Um, Mm -hmm. A a lot of doctrine, uh, they've been changing um, in recent years, but not necessarily in a way that is pro or anti any established understanding of speech principles from the last 20 years, I'll I'll, uh, Mm -hmm. postulate. So I, I guess my question is, reading the tea leaves filtered through the lens of a uh, a crystal ball and a uh, dark mirror. Um, what, what, what do you think uh, is going to happen on these issues with the current Supreme Court over the next five years or so? Well, the first thing I'd say is the law as it stands is just crystal clear. All the arguments that Facebook is making, there are some kind of subtle subtle objections here, but I think it's pretty clear that that Facebook has the winning side of the argument today. At least the, the lower courts have treated platforms as the equivalent of newspapers. They've said that all this stuff is editorial and protected by the First Amendment. Going forward, you know, there's a couple of really interesting developments here. One is that since the Trump presidency and 2020 in particular, there's a lot of energy on the right in favor of regulating platforms' ability to regulate speech. And the most prominent example of this is this Florida law, which wasn't very well well written, uh, but a Florida law that imposed a bunch of restrictions on what platforms can do with speech by political candidates, and it's been struck down in court. And so, you know, there are at least a couple of right-wing, you know, Republican justices on the court who are, I think, curious about the idea of treating platforms as something like common carriers. But here's what's really interesting about this. I think the argument that I was making a little bit ago, where I kind of asked, what if we looked at the freedom of speech the same way that we look at discrimination, you know, personal discrimination issues involving race, that kind of thing? What if we were to try to take some lessons from the civil rights era about the relationship between state institutions and powerful private actors? The thing about that argument is that argument is actually a pretty natural fit for, I think, the left and Democrats who are who are on the court. In fact, a few years ago, when everybody thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win the presidency and, and set up a, a Supreme Court that had a lasting liberal majority, I started to write a paper about, well, what's this liberal majority going to do? And um, this was one area that I identified. You know, e- even before I was really thinking about these issues a lot, I just thought, well, it's kind of a natural thing, I think, for legal progressives to question the accumulation of power by private corporations. And so we might see this this kind of updating of, of speech law. Well, if there's existing energy on the on the right for this kind of move, and if it's a kind of move that the left has traditionally gotten behind in, in other areas besides free speech... Uh, I, I think that that suggests that over at least a, a long term, the, the court might begin to accept uh, more and more regulation of these platforms. So I, I want to turn now to talking about a bit of your current work. One of the areas where you've been working is on 
really kind of the the flip side of a lot of these issues, media subsidies and how we shore up local newspapers, and in particular, how we can do that in a way that would uh, work with the First Amendment or, I guess, survive uh, First Amendment challenges. And I characterize it as the flip side of what we've been talking about, because at some level, if we had a robust marketplace with lots of Mm -hmm. different uh, voices and media outlets, then we would have far fewer concerns about the amount of power that anyone Mm -hmm. has because there's more competition. But Mm -hmm. what we've seen over the last uh, 15, 20 years has really been a gutting and shrinking of the local media marketplace in particular. So uh, can you just tell us a little bit about this work and uh, some of the challenges that you're trying to work through? Yeah, well, at the beginning of our conversation, we were talking about the ways that platforms lower costs for lots of speakers to to get in and, and publish. Well, so it's a lot cheaper now to publish to large groups of people than, than it used to be. The upshot of that, if these early you know, front-end costs are a lot lower, is that you're going to have a lot more competition in the journalism sector. Well, if there's a lot more competition in the journalism sector, that's bad news for traditional news institutions. And the reason for that is that traditional news institutions incur really heavy front-end costs, you know, just by undertaking investigations and engaging in quality reporting. That kind of stuff is really, really expensive, and you need big profits to cover those costs. Before the internet, when there wasn't a lot of competition from speakers who were running like really cheap, you know, low-cost operations, it was actually possible for newspapers to get profits of 20, 30%. And the reason for that is that there could only be a few institutions in any given community that could afford to run a newspaper. Most cities in in the United States had one, you know, at at most two newspapers. They they had this kind of monopoly position. Well, now that monopoly position's gone. So now that these newspapers can't make monopoly monopoly profits, they're kind of withering away. So huge numbers of newspapers have closed all all around the country. Most local newspapers that are left are kind of diminished. They've had to lay off lots of reporters. There are a few institutions that have, you know, like like the New York Times, like the the Washington Post to a, a lesser extent, that have managed to go really big and set themselves up as as national organizations with huge audiences but they're really the the exception. And so what it looks like in this market that we have today is there's just no natural profit path for the traditional local news operation. You know, it's a, a major loss for a, a community. There's money that's lost when uh, corruption isn't uncovered. There's maybe kind of a loss of, of community cohesion if, if people don't know what's what's going on in the community. I think this may contribute to polarization because uh, people wind up paying more attention to to national news, which is highly emotional, kind of abstract, and, and less attention to local news. And so I kind of I start from this assumption that the market's not going to figure out a way to bring back local news, at least local newspapers. Or if if the market does figure out a way, it's probably not going to come fast enough. We need something in the next (laughs) negative 10 years. (laughs) Yeah, negative 10 years. Uh, And so if if the market's not going to provide it, well, that that pretty much leaves the government. 
Now, there are a couple of ways to do this, and both have precedent. So one is public broadcasting. So PBS, NPR, and the Corporation of Public Broadcasting. Other public broadcasting we don't think so much about domestically might be operations like Voice of America or Radio Free Europe. These are uh, journalistic operations that operate abroad. There's a Stars and Stripes, a, a military newspaper. One way to make up for this loss of local news would be to just really beef up the, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and just have state-funded media on a much broader basis. You might call this like the BBC model. This would be kind of similar to what happens in the UK. The other way to go would be to take these existing private institutions and just subsidize them. And there's some some precedent for this too. So if if we go pretty much all the way back to the founding era, there's this long tradition of postal subsidies, laws that that say that newspapers can distribute for free within some set radius without having to pay for postage. That, that winds up being a form of, of subsidy. That kind of thing continues today. Uh, you know, magazines pay a lower rate of postage. There's also stuff like nonprofit status. So some journalistic institutions have said that they're nonprofits. Now they don't have to pay taxes. But those only go so far, those kinds of subsidies. They're critical, but they're not going to restore the same kind of cost and, and revenue structure that these newspapers had way back when. So the other way to go, besides just really beefing up the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, would be to start cutting like really substantial checks to local news operations. And it's it's the second approach that I was really looking at. And, and the reason that I've focused more on, on the subsidy approach is that the Corporation for Public Broadcasting has been under fire. It's had kind of a, a political target on its back almost since, since the outset. There have been uh, multiple attempts to shut it down altogether. It just seems really politically unlikely. We can just uh, look at National Public Radio, which actually isn't yeah. uh, government-supported, uh, like the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. NPR is a network of local affiliates that do their own fundraising and subsists largely based upon uh, corporate uh, sponsorship and uh, perhaps some university sponsorship for local stations. Mm -hmm. But uh, they're, they're not a Corporation for Public Broadcasting style media outlet, but there's calls for them to be shut down. Yeah. So, you know, th this kind of move has has traditionally been really controversial in the United States. You know, what we've done domestically with the Corporation for Public Broadcasting is a pretty small program. So I, I don't think politically we can hope to get anywhere close to a, a program large enough to make up for the loss of local journalism. So then we have the subsidy option. Now, I expect big subsidies would also be politically controversial, but maybe a little less controversial. And, and part of the reason I say that is just that a big subsidy program doesn't set up an entity like the Corporation for Public Broadcasting that you can affix a target to. Part of the reason is that these, these subsidies have just been around a long time and people have gotten used to them in the past. Well, so what I was thinking about is, you know, what are the First Amendment consequences of, of doing this? If the government was to take the Corporation for Public Broadcasting type approach and just set up public media, there's a high likelihood that the government wouldn't have to worry about the First Amendment uh, at, at all. 
And the reason for that is there's this government speech doctrine that we were talking about earlier. The government's free to set up its its own message. Now, of course, you don't want a state media operation that's just propaganda, that kind of thing. But hi historically, organizations like the Corporation for Public Broadcasting or, or even Radio Free Europe or, or Voice for America, uh, those have all had these, these guarantees of journalistic independence. All indications are that that approach would be fine for First Amendment purposes. It's just that the politics are so bad. So that leaves subsidies. With subsidies, the big difficulty is that if the government is going to offer subsidies on a broad basis, a content neutral basis, a viewpoint neutral basis, you know, they include protections for editorial independence. They guarantee newspapers, we're not going to withdraw the subsidy because you criticize uh, the, the governor or the president. All that kind of stuff that we would want a subsidy program to include. Well, at that point, kind of perversely, courts are going to say, okay, now the First Amendment applies because what you've done is you've established a public forum of newspapers. You know, you've said that this subsidy goes to everybody. Well, the First Amendment requires the subsidy to really go to everybody. Now, more specifically, the rule that would kick in here is that the subsidy would have to be truly viewpoint neutral. Now, that might not sound like that big an ask. You know, obviously, it makes sense to say we wouldn't discriminate on the basis of partisan orientation or something like that if we were distributing a subsidy. But if you are a lawyer who's familiar with the Supreme Court's First Amendment work, you'll know that they read the word viewpoint differently from the way that most people would. Viewpoint is a very, very broad conception. And what you could get is basically a world where like the AP, okay, they have one viewpoint. And like, you know, Breitbart, this really, you know, low quality institution, well, they have, they have another viewpoint. And so my concern is that in setting up a subsidy, it would actually be very hard for the government to set uh, minimum standards for journalistic quality without potentially crossing this viewpoint line. Yeah. So it seems to me that either of these approaches uh, have... Uh, immediate concerns. And I, I think that they both turn into the, the same concern, which is really, if the government were to try and do either of these, would hoi polloi, the, the people, the population, citizens, um, would we actually allow this to continue on for mm -hmm. any extended period of time? Because I'm, I'm just thinking, let's go the first route. The government has its own voice and it establishes a domestic media platform. Um, it, it seems exceptionally difficult to prevent that, especially in our current environment, from being characterized by the other side and ultimately becoming a voice of partisan views. I'm, I mean, I'm certain mm -hmm. that if we had had that established in the uh, Obama era, that in the uh, Trump era, it would have become Radio America first. And if mm -hmm. uh, that that would be entirely appropriate, according to what you're saying, from the perspective of the government voice and which is kind of perverse. Ex exactly. <laughs> well, and, yeah. and then the same yeah. thing uh, <laughs> happens um, if we're in a subsidy model. Um, we're going to have mm -hmm. lots of uh, subsidies going out to lots of different voices, lots of different perspectives. 
including let's say that we're in a 50-50 split world and we're, we're not by any means, but half of the population is going to be upset about half of the subsidies. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably mm-hmm. yeah. there's going to be clever lawyering going on to uh, make sure that the most partisan groups that probably should be excluded from either side are able to get some of this funding, which will politically delegitimize it. So I, I guess I'll ask, isn't the First Amendment intended to prevent and protect against that sort of stuff? Or is it intended to enable and facilitate that sort of stuff? That That's hardball political speech. Well, I think that the kind of lawyering that you're talking about, you know, lawyering that would try to exclude uh, certain types of voices from the subsidy, you know, that's exactly the kind of thing that the First Amendment should protect against. The problem is that I think administering a subsidy program would probably require a First Amendment that involved some degree of just kind of human wisdom or or judgment about what's going on, as opposed to the just kind of logic chopping approach that the Supreme Court tends to take to these things. You know, there's there's an old case called uh, National Endowment for the Arts versus Finley, that I think gets at some broadly similar issues. And this is a case that involved a grant program for artists that is really kind of a, a lifeline in the in the arts world. It's pretty common for this to be about a third of an arts organization's budget. But this, this program was set up to give subsidies to a really wide range of voices, uh, in, including voices that were provocative, that were caustic, that criticized the government, that flouted conventional morality, that kind of thing. If you don't have those kinds of protections, you know, an arts subsidy uh, is not going to be seen as legitimate. It's a very similar kind of thing. We should uh, interject. There, there are different views about the uh, purpose and nature of art. If you believe that art is at its best when it is critical and probing and challenges, um, mm-hmm. then that is true. If you believe art is at its best when it is a portrayal of overarching societal values and capturing mm-hmm. the uh, fundamental aesthetic of beauty that a society holds to be true, well, then you might have different outcomes. So the ontological mm-hmm. nature and purpose of art is a contested proposition. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a, a bit like saying what speech is, I think, or maybe what news is. But back around 1990, there were a few works. And, you know, for, for example, there was a, a woman who had a performance piece where she was naked and, and covered in chocolate. Okay, so there's there's an example And so the whole program came under kind of heavy fire from conservatives mainly. And the program was amended to require the National Endowment for the Arts to consider decency and respect when deciding to make a grant. So the work doesn't have to be decent, but the National Endowment for the Arts has to consider decency. Well, I think at a political level and And I think probably if you want government to play a big role in subsidizing the arts world, this is probably a pretty decent compromise. If the National Endowment for the Arts had to underwrite this kind of performance art, that might put the whole program in danger because it would be subject to these kind of sustained attacks. 
if the National Endowment for the Arts doesn't have to underwrite works that are going to be politically poisonous, that's going to be a good thing for the program's political viability. But at the same time, we don't have the government taking a particularly heavy-handed approach in enforcing the National Endowment for the Arts to cut funding for these kinds of works. Well, so this was challenged at, at the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court upheld the policy, and it was kind of a muddled approach. I think what's more interesting, actually, than what the majority did, which I would view as kind of a political compromise, ultimately a wise political compromise, what's more interesting here, I think, is Justice Scalia's concurrence in the judgment, where he said the program didn't present any kind of First Amendment issue at all, because what we were talking about was a form of government speech that the government is free to subsidize whatever art it wants. It doesn't have to subsidize art that is anti-American or that's hateful or, or whatever. It's simply not a First Amendment question. And at some level, that's, you know, it's, it's kind of an appealing approach. The problem is, though, that if we're talking about a program that is responsible for covering a pretty big portion of lots of arts organizations' budgets. You know, if the arts sector is really heavily dependent on this program, if the arts sector is infused with these kind of free speech concerns, and if the government doesn't have to follow any particular free speech rules in deciding who gets the money, well, now the government can actually play this pretty authoritarian role in the arts world. And actually, that's exactly the same kind of thing that we've seen recently in a lot of countries that have been experiencing democratic backsliding, like um, you know, Hungary, for example. The government coming in and playing a much more politically active role in deciding what kinds of arts organizations are going to get funding and which ones are not. Well, I think that's exactly the kind of thing that we would get with a news subsidy program. Mm -hmm. If we said that a news subsidy just counted as government speech. That's not a good it, it world. It seems a treacherous path to go down. Mm -hmm. Well, Kyle, we are coming close to the end of our time, but uh, I, I do want to take a, a brief moment to talk about another project that you are working on that looks at cryptocurrency regulation and the First Amendment. Yeah. Um, and I, I expect, knowing you and your work and also the, the little uh, laugh that you just let out, that uh, you, you probably can tell us about this project and the, the punchline of it in a matter of a, a minute or so. Yeah. So I uh, have at it. Uh, yeah, well, so the cryptocurrency industry likes to say that their product is like secured by math and that all we're really talking about is just uh, pure information here. It's decentralized in various ways, impossible to regulate. Well, turns out it probably actually is possible to regulate the markets for crypto products. And so the next best thing to being impossible to regulate is being unconstitutional to regulate. And so the argument is basically that because these crypto products are just pure math or, or whatever, well, then what they really are is pure speech. It's not even that they're math. It's they're, they're computer code. I, I wrote the computer code yeah. just like I wrote a novel. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it is my speech. It is protected by the First Amendment. Government, keep your mitts off. Right. I wrote the code. I'm using the code to communicate with other visionaries about mathematical concepts. You just can't regulate crypto products the same way that you would ordinary money. Well, Ultimately, you know, they have some First Amendment arguments that maybe make sense at some level, but they're ultimately arguments against like securities law generally, against like banking law generally. 
if it's unconstitutional to regulate crypto, it probably means that securities law is unconstitutional. It probably means that banking law is generally unconstitutional. The one argument that they really have is this argument that code is a form of speech. But basically, this is an argument that always loses in court, and it should always lose in court. And we, we should say the reason it keeps coming up is it didn't lose in court once. Yeah. A, a, yeah. a district court case, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, the Bernstein case, which in, involved uh, encryption and uh, export mm-hmm. controls and regulation of encryption. If there is a truly expressive element to the code, then perhaps that particular instantiation of the code might have some First Amendment protection. But yeah. it's, a, it's an overreading to say that And therefore, all code is expression and is protected strongly by the First Amendment. Yeah, there are a couple of cases where somebody got a favorable result with this code of speech argument. These are both cases involving academic communications. So somebody's giving a lecture on cryptography. They want to put up a slide that has the code on it. Well, of course they do, because that's the only way to give that lecture. You know, if you want to be a computer science professor who can't put code up on a board, well, that basically means you can't be a computer science professor. That's a big First Amendment problem. But the thing is, this computer science professor isn't somebody who needs the code of speech argument. They're speaking because they're a computer science professor. Uh, They're already speakers. And so you'll have other kinds of cases where somebody says, well, I want to distribute code for cracking digital rights management software on a uh, on an MP3 or something. This is the the early 2000s. Well, you know, that person didn't win, I would say, largely because they were not a person who otherwise appeared to be engaged in speech. Well, Kyle, speaking of speech, for better or worse, the First Amendment does not require me to let you continue speaking. We are at our time. (laughs) So uh, thank you for taking the time uh, to talk with us today on Tech Refactored. Yeah, anytime. Tech Refactored is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The NGTC is a partnership led by the College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business, and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Tech Refactored is hosted and executive produced by Gus Hurwitz. James Fleegey is our producer. Additional production assistance is provided by the NGTC staff. You can find supplemental information for this episode at the links provided in the show notes. To stay up to date on what's happening with the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, visit our website at ngtc.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNL underscore NGTC.